And so this morning, we're going to finish up. This is the final part of a three-part series, Make War. And so this morning, we're going to start with a passage, Isaiah 59, real quick. Let's jump in there real quick. Isaiah 59. God bless your word, bless your people. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us into truth. Thank you, Lord. Isaiah 59 will begin with verse 15, and it reads thus, and I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, absolutely no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And so his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He, God, put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And he put on righteousness as his breastplate, helmet of salvation. He put on the garments of vengeance. God put on. Now, the thing is, when you read to Ephesians, if we go to Ephesians real quick, I want you to notice something. When you read Ephesians, which has been our primary text in this conversation for the past couple of weeks, Paul actually alludes to this. Paul echoes this passage from Isaiah. That God has weapons, that God has armor, that God has a breastplate, that God has a helmet, that God has God's own armor. And so in Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally be strong. I think it's up there. Oh, there we go. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in God's mighty power. And he says, put on the full armor of God. Now, one of the things that uh, when we read the Hebrew scriptures, you know, modern Christians, we call the Old Testament. I call it the Hebrew scriptures for out of respect for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And in the New Testament, the Christian scriptures... There's this belief that God has many, many characteristics. Now, we turn them into bumper stickers and cliches like, you know, God is good. God is love. God is holy. But these are truths, powerful truths. But also, there is this truth that we see in Scripture that God is a divine warrior. That God will fight. And so, uh, in this passage, back in Isaiah, don't turn there, it's good right there. But back in Isaiah, 
the, the, the prophet Isaiah has been called upon God to prophesy the word of the Lord to Israel to ask a fundamental question in the midst of injustice, in the midst of unrighteousness, in the midst of opposition and struggle, in the midst of the enemy seemingly have its, the enemy having its own way in their midst. God says, who's going to stand up? Who's going to fight? Who's going to take up the weapons of war against the enemy, against the unrighteousness? Who is going to stand for justice? Isaiah is saying. <clears throat> so it's almost like they're in the midst of the fight, and God stands up and look around and says, who's going to do it? And God says through Isaiah, no one. Oh, thank you. No one. So God says, you know the old adage, how many of y'all ever say this? You know, everybody's supposed to be doing something, right? And nobody is doing it. Everybody both be doing something, but everybody ain't doing it. So it's in you to do it. So what do you do is that, you know, if it don't get done, somebody got to do it. And this is what God's mindset is, right? It's like, Man, all this evil, all this craziness is happening. We're in exile. We're in political, economic, social, political bondage. And nobody is standing up for right. And God says, I'll go. Let me put on my armor. Let me put on my weapons. And then Paul says this in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians, fast forward. And then Paul says this, he says, in the midst of the principalities and powers, you can't fight these powers. And this is the difference between warfare between in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament. See, see, in the Old Testament, God will call upon Israel to actually go fight flesh and blood wars. They will go fight the Philistines, the Babylonians. God would deliver Israel out of the bondage, political, economic bondage of Egypt. And God literally smote Egypt with plagues and all kind of signs and wonders. But in the New Testament, the battle goes deeper. See, this is why in the first three centuries of Christianity, Christians didn't fight the enemy through physical means. Matter of fact, when you read the early church, I'm not making this stuff up. We have some scholars in here, so look this up for yourself now. In the early church, when a Roman soldier would convert and follow Christ, he would put down his weapons and fight no more. Sometimes subject to persecution and death. So Christians were very serious about this thing. We are not going to fight people with flesh and blood weapons. And so in the, in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, there's flesh and blood fighting against nation against nation, people against people, religions against religions. And then in the New Testament, you see this call to no longer fight against flesh and blood. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, some Christians didn't get that message. This is true. Around the, around the year 300 or so, 313, for three centuries, Christianity was illegal. How many of y'all knew that? From the first century, from the time of Christ, the first apostles, for three centuries, Christianity was an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. 
Then something happened in the year 313. Christianity became legal. And then this is when the compromise began to happen. Christians began to think, oh, yeah. You begin to see, you see this today with some Christians. They're quick to go to the Old Testament to justify war. I'm talking Christians now. I ain't talking about nations. I ain't, don't confuse the kingdom of God with America. So when I say that, don't say, well, you say America ain't supposed to go fight. I'm not calling America the kingdom of God. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. I ain't talking about the United States of America. And that's how we've been twisted in our discipleship. And so anyway, Paul is saying this, giving this image. He's saying that God is a warrior, that God has armor, that God has weapons. And so he says, put that on. Who will fight? Who will stand up? And in Ephesians, how can we live in a hostile culture as ambassadors of love? And so Paul's saying here in Ephesians 6, he's saying that, y'all know that armor that God has? You know the weapons that God has? God's given them to us. God has given them to us. It's one thing to give something to somebody that's not yours. But God lends us God's own weapons, God's own armor. God lends us, gives us, gifts us, graces us with God's own armor. Isn't that something? And this is powerful because we live in a culture where there's so many forces that Uh, that vie for our hearts, that compete for our hearts and our minds and our souls. And so while in the Old Testament the battle was flesh and blood, in the New Testament, God, Jesus goes to the very heart and the root of war and oppression and division and strife. The Bible calls it the law of sin and death. The power of sin and death. So Jesus doesn't Engage in a battle that fights on the surface against actual armies, against people, against political opponents. Jesus goes under the surface and defeats the forces that actually cause those things to happen on the surface. Jesus goes to the root of a thing. And it's fair to say this, that through Jesus' death, his ministry, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, Jesus has won the war. Now, this is crazy, isn't it? Normally, in the natural, what happens is when nations go to war, they have to win the battles to say they won the war. Y'all know this, right? So, in the world, in the natural, you got to win battles, fight battles to get to the end of the victory of the war. But in the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. In the kingdom of God, Jesus won the war against sin and death, but we still battle to the very end. The war has already been won. Now we're engaging in the battle. Jesus is mopping up the creation with us. He's using us to mop up to renew and heal and to, and to uh, deal with the aftershocks of the resurrection. 
And so this is powerful when you think about it, that God has already secured the victory through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension. But now we just engaged in the battle. So that's one thing to know. That's something to rest secure in, that God has secured the victory. That's the point of wearing God's armor. This is God's victory that we have on, that we put on. It is God's victory. The things by which God used to secure victory over sin and death, Paul now says you can wear that armor. That you can wear the thing, put on the thing that secured the victory over sin and death. But even more powerfully, when Paul says, put on the armor of God, he's saying this to his people, especially in the culture in which we live in today. God is saying this, you are not alone in the battle. Mm. So you got on God's armor. You got on God's protection. You got on God's fight. You ever heard that before? Man, they got fight in them. You heard that before? Man, they got fight. There's, there's some people, you look at them, they just got a fight in their spirit. They just fight. Like my mother-in-law, man, she had fight in her spirit. She didn't give up. What would it look like to have the fight of God in you? What would it look like to have God's fight in you? Can you imagine that for just a moment? I got God's fight in my soul. Mm. <laughs> And we are not alone. You are not alone. And so Paul says something here. So Paul is like this, this great general, this great apostle. And he's like, all right, soldiers, all right, saints. I'm going to tell you a few things. I'm going to share with you a few things to prepare you for battle. The victory's won, but I still got to prepare you for battle. And so he says something here in Ephesians. Verse 11, Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I love this. So he says, put on God's armor to understand that you've been, in, that you've been graced with God's fight, that you've been embraced, that you've been in, uh, embraced, that you have been uh, enfolded, that you have been possessed but God's grace, given that reality, he says, now you're able to stand so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Now, here's the thing about the devil in this passage, the enemy. The Bible says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Paul says here, schemes. The word schemes come from the military term strategy. The enemy is strategic. But the enemy oftentimes does not engage in frontal assault. The enemy oftentimes comes under subterfuge, subtly, seducing. When Jesus in Matthew 4 is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he doesn't come full frontal assault on Jesus. He shares the word. Doesn't your Bible say this? Doesn't the word say this, Jesus? But why don't you do this? Isn't that something? Paul says that the, angel, that the devil, the Satan, 
would appear as an angel of light. So what does that mean? That means in military strategy terms, that means that the enemy oftentimes, um, sometimes he'll go full frontal assault on you. I know y'all have experienced that, right? When the enemy goes full frontal assault, like blitzkrieg on you. Lightning war. But oftentimes, most times, it's subtle. It's strategic. It's seducing. Slight, subtle persuasion. And so Paul says, in order to combat the strategy and the wiles of the enemy, he says, you've got to put on the armor of God. And he says, uh, and, and we've said this several times, that he says, well, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the armor of God. Notice he says it again. The second time he says it. Therefore, in light of all that, in light of all these spiritual forces of evil that are work in the world, these corrupting forces that invade our communities, that invade our homes, that invade our personal lives, these corrupting forces, these forces that would try to stamp out life and purpose and direction. Paul says in order to combat them, to struggle against them, you have to put on the full armor of God. <clears throat> and so, turn to your neighbor and say, armor up. Now, as I was studying this, 13 is, after he says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. Now, as I was reading this and I began to study, I know I like Greek and stuff, it just blew my mind what he was saying. He says, put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the enemy. Now, notice what happens. Notice how many times I want to read this passage through. I want you to notice how many times he uses the word stand in the text. Notice this. He says, he says uh, that you may be able to, able to stand your ground after you have done everything, stand. Stand firm then when the belt of truth, and he goes on and on. That word stand there. If you get a chance this evening or this time this week, go to this passage and highlight the, many, the number of times the word stand is used. And as you read that, and you study that, and you write that down, what's powerful is the word stand in the Greek. I'm not going to try to quote the Greek language to you because I don't want to appear too deep. But in the English, the word stand is the English word antihistamine. Anybody know what an antihistamine is? Yes. Right? How many here suffer from allergies? Right. I do. Right. I had to get on my nebulizer this morning because I, I had really bad asthma. I was like, man, these allergies kicking my butt. Does anybody know what happens to your body when you're having an allergic reaction? 
What happens is your, your physical body, there are these foreign bodies called antigens. It could be pollen, it could be dust mites, it could be animal hair, it could be whatever it is that you're allergic to. And what happens is these things come into our body and our body produces, naturally our body produces these things called histamine. And what histamine does, it begins to cause your body to be irritated. So when your nose is starting to run and your skin is itching, your body is letting you know that something foreign has come into your body. See, we're talking to culture to think, you know, a runny nose and all that's bad. That's actually your body know that you're being invaded. So you begin to itch. And you begin to stand. And you begin to, uh, I ain't got to stand yet. But so you begin to itch, runny nose, all kind of stuff, right? Throat start closing up. Eyes start watering. Start getting hives and all kind of stuff. That's your body saying, sounding the alarm saying, Somebody here. They ain't supposed to be here. <laughs> Something in my body they ain't supposed to be here. And then those are histamines. And so then what happens then, in order to address the allergic reaction, what do we do? We take antihistamines. Antihistamines come from outside the body, right? But their, their, their role is to help you deal and to address your allergic reaction to the thing that you're becoming allergic to. And so Paul says, first he says, stand histamine. And then he says, stand firm, antihistamine. So the armor of God, check this out now, this, is, this messed me up when I read this. The armor of God makes you allergic to the strategies of the enemy. Mm. God's power in your life will make you become more allergic to the ways of evil. To the ways of the world, to the strategies of the enemy. Turn your neighbor and say, I'm not alone in this. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm becoming allergic. Now, Paul, being a great uh, uh, strategy person, a great uh, spiritual military genius, he's saying, all right, I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm going to break it down how God's going to make you allergic, able to stand against the strategies of the enemy. And notice what he says. He says this. Take up what? He says, the first thing he says, take up is what? He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth. And so Paul begins to lay out this imagery, right? He's using the imagery of the warrior. Now, oftentimes people think that he's talking specifically of a Roman soldier, secondarily so. Primarily he's talking about God as a soldier, God as a warrior. He's talking about the God, the divine warrior that's in Isaiah. He's not talking about primarily a Roman soldier. That's secondary. He's talking about God's belt of truth. Put that on. Put on God's truth. Now, now, in our culture, 
Christians oftentimes are taught that truth, what are we becoming allergic to when we put on truth? And I can't tell you how many times I get into arguments with Christians when they want to reduce truth to an idea in your head. An abstraction. Re- reduce it to simply a doctrine of some kind. But Jesus said something weird once. Jesus said, I am the truth. See, see, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, truth primarily is, big T, is Jesus. <laughs> see, from a Christian perspective, truth is primarily a person. Not some idea in your head, although ideas can be true, but the truth is a person. And so it's easy in our culture to reduce truth to an idea or to an abstract or to an ideology, right? It's easy to do that because uh, when you abstract truth from reality, it's easy to justify evil. That's why I'm kind of, I get a little hesitant when Christians use the Bible to kill people, spiritually and physically. The Bible becomes this abstraction, this idea that I have to defend. It doesn't really matter how I treat others. Reminds me of what Desmond Tutu said once about when, when uh, Britain came to colonize South Africa. He says, the British came with their Bibles. They left their Bibles and took our land. And and it's popular in our culture now to talk about, oh, they just tell it like it is. And people think that's a virtue. You can still tell a truth and still be an oppressor. Hmm. But when you've been captured by the truth, you catch it by love. True truth leads one to truthful living. It's not enough to just know the truth. The truth has to be in you. <clears throat> so notice the, 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 the order that uh, Paul puts the armor in. He puts it in an order that he's actually, the, the soldier's actually putting it on. So he first says he puts on the belt of truth. And when you do that, you become allergic to lies. <laughs> lies about God. Lies about your neighbor. Lies about the world around you. And I would say importantly, Second to lies about God, lies about yourself. One of, the most, one of the greatest battles that people have is the lies they've been told about themselves. They call it the false self. Somebody, I remember when I was a kid, man, there was so much I wanted to do that I did when I was a kid. You know, I, you know one of the ways you can tell, one of the ways you can tell your, your children have been graced by God is what they have an inclination towards. And I remember when, as, I don't know, six, seven years old, I, was, I had a couple of interests. One, I used to memorize all the dinosaurs. I could say all the weird names, platypus, you know, tyrannosaurus, brontosaurus. 
And I also had this fixation with, uh, with airplanes and jets and astronauts and being an astronaut and space travel. And so I remember I, I, I could tell you, like, the, 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 the details of engine propulsion for jet propulsion. As a kid, I was really into this thing, y'all. Like, I already had it mapped out. I was going to go to NASA. Well, no, I had tracked out. I was going to go to join the Air Force, become a pilot, and become a pilot, and become an astronaut. Like, I was seriously going to become an astronaut. I really wanted to be an astronaut. I was really into this thing. And I remember my, my dad, and bless his heart, he didn't know, man. I told my dad, I was like, yo, dad, I said, dad, I want to be an astronaut. And at the time, there had not been African-American astronauts, right? There had not been a... Um, a McNair yet. Right, everybody know McNair, who was a uh, first African-American astronaut, right? And, well, you know, bless him, he died in a Challenger explosion back in the 80s. And my dad said to me, ain't no Negro can be an astronaut. <laughs> I was like, oh, Really? <laughs> I'm a kid now, right? They can't? No. I thought, okay. So I found something else. So I, I picked up my mom. My mom had this little wooden recorder. They used to play in the kids, you know, jazz remember that. She had a little recorder. She used to drive us crazy with it, playing around the house. Woo, woo, woo. Right, you know, a little wooden recorder they give you in school. And I'd be down there, man, and something in me would just go downstairs, and I'd put on these old jazz albums. I'm like seven, eight years old listening to John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, King Curtis, right? And I'm, and I'm just instinctually start playing these things, you know, by ear. In my mind, it sounds good, you know. It's, it sounds bad, you know, to other people, I'm sure. But I remember thinking, man, I could do this. And so I remember telling my dad, I was like, Dad, I was all excited. Dad, I know what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a saxophone player. Ain't no Negro able to make a living playing the saxophone. I'm like, Dad, John Coltrane and Charlie Parker and, and King Curtis and all these guys did. Cannonball Adderley, all these great jazz musicians, they were able to make a living. Ain't no Negro. So anyway, my point is, is that there's lies that we believed about ourselves. Somebody said that you was too ugly. Somebody said that you weren't smart. Somebody says that you weren't capable. And then the seeds of lies, the lying seed, begin to be planted in your heart. And that's why now, even as an adult, young folk, y'all got one up on adults right now. Adults, this is hard for us. You young right now, begin to address the lies now. But as an adult, it becomes a Herculean effort to fight these lies. Thank God for the armor of God. Yes, God will overpower that. But think of yourself as an adult right now. How many times were you about to engage something that seems so big and so, so awesome and overwhelming, you begin to doubt yourself? I can't do this. This is too big. Even starting this church years ago when we first started in houses and worshiping together and reading the Bible together, and people start showing up, and me and Dustin would look at each other like 35 people being in the crib, right? This is about a couple years ago, and we're like, man, this is too much. This is scary. So we shut it down. He's <laughs> like, we're going to stop this. This is too much. This is too scary. So the belt of truth will make you allergic to that. 
The truth of God will make you allergic to the lies that you've been told and the lies that you tell yourself. He says, put on the truth. And so he says, next thing is this, put on the the breastplate of righteousness, right? He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so the breastplate protected the vital organs, protected your heart, your lungs, your ability to breathe and to pump blood through your body. And the word righteousness there, we've kind of, in the King James kind of messed it up with um, the word righteousness because we, we typically reduce it to just, you know, I'm a great, I'm a good moral individual. I just live right. But the word biblically, I'm just going to throw this at you. Biblically speaking, righteousness in the Bible is more than just you living right as an individual. You being moral. I don't drink. I don't cuss. I don't smoke anymore. I don't go to the club anymore. I do all these moral great things. I drive the speed limit. I don't watch rated R movies. You know, whatever. Christians have been seduced into thinking that is what righteousness is. Righteousness in the Bible literally means right-making, to make the world right. Wherever your sphere of influence, your job as a believer and follower of Jesus is to make that patch of earth right before God. That means that you're in right relation with God, yes. You're in right relation with your neighbor, yes. Right relation with your enemy, yes. Right relation with the world around you, with the actual physical creation, are you treating, are you a steward of the creation? Righteousness extends even to how we treat the creation. Righteousness is being right, making right with God, with neighbor, with the creation. It's a big old word. So when we understand, when we put on God's righteousness, ability to make things right. <laughs> See, God makes things right. And so when God graces us to do that, we become allergic to self-righteousness. They don't love Jesus like I do. It's just about me and Jesus. No one else. I don't know about their relationship with God. I know I'm good. Oh, yeah, they fall into a ditch. Oh, well, I know I'm good with God. Or a pretend righteousness. And this is, this is part of our culture, right? Especially church culture, where we're taught to put on a religious persona. So we put on our church face, a, right, a church righteousness face, right? I look holy. How do you look holy? I don't even understand that concept, right? How do you look holy? How do you look righteous? The Bible is less concerned about looking righteous and being righteous. There's a different thing. So we become allergic to looking righteous, and we become more in tune with becoming righteous in the sight of God. God has already made us right before God through Jesus' sacrifice. He's declared us justified, declared us righteous, but now God is working it out in our lives. So then the last thing is the gospel of peace. The gospel of the shoes says, and with your feet fitted with the Readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Put on your gospel shoes of peace. So 
What does that mean? That means you don't put the gospel on your feet. So wherever you walk, you take the gospel with you. Wherever you walk, the word gospel means good news. So wherever you walk, you bring good news with you wherever you walk on this earth. But it's, it, it gets specific. He says the good news of peace. So wherever you walk, you take good news with you. Wherever you walk, you bring peace with you. I'm not talking about, you know, the internal peace. Ooh. Right? That happens. That's great to feel contentment and peace within the soul. But the ability to become a peacemaker, the ability to become to stand in the gap of disunity, in the gap of conflict, and becoming a person that demonstrates peace and reconciliation in our families and in our communities. So Paul says God's going to put on his shoes, God's own shoes of peace on your feet. So put them on. And he says good news, gospel. And for those of you who know, you know, the gospel has been severely narrowed and truncated and shrink-wrapped, right? The gospel for many people, you know, just starts with this question. If you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? You ever heard this before? Right? Uh, you know, Jesus doesn't say that when he says he's preaching the gospel. <laughs> That's something we made up later 500 years ago or so. But what Jesus says what the gospel is, it is the good news that the kingdom of God has invaded the earth and that it's producing goodness, love, and mercy, and justice in the world, primarily starting with us as individuals and as a community, but it has an echoing effect out into the world in which we live. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come through Jesus. It's that simple. We've made it so difficult. We made it four laws and Romans road to heaven and all this weird stuff, and it's quite, quite simple. So you put on the feet, the shoes of the gospel. And what's next, y'all? So when we put on those shoes, we become allergic to conflict. Let, 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 let me, let me, let me re rephrase that. We become allergic to causing conflict. <laughs> right? Because anybody knows, living out this gospel causes conflict with people, right? Because I got friends, close friends who do this community work with me now. They know the conflict that happens when you begin to practice reconciliation. Oh, you ain't with us anymore? You're for them now? Right? You can only be for black people, and you can't be for all people? Not when I'm called to put on the gospel of peace. Each group has its own issues, no doubt. There's some issues that black folk got to deal with. There's some issues that white folk and brown folk and yellow folk and red folk got to deal with. And each one has its own unique challenges. But as a person who has put on the gospel of peace, I can't fall easily into the narrative, into the story that the powers have set in this culture. So I become allergic to causing conflict. I become allergic to tunnel vision. I become allergic to worshiping the culture in which I come from. I become allergic to worshiping my race. I begin to romanticize the history of my own people, ignoring the sin, 
the sexism, the patriarchy that happens in my own culture, the way we treat our women, but we had a glorious past. We built pyramids where we treat our women like crap. Yes, we did great things as people, especially people of African descent. Yes, we built pyramids. Yes, we made math. Yes, we did all these powerful, artistic, and beautiful things. Europe did beautiful things. Asian culture did beautiful things. Hispanic, Latino culture has created beautiful things, but they also have done some ugly things. A person that wears the shoes of the gospel understands that there's some conflict hidden in each culture in which we live in. There's the dark side of the force. <laughs> and so the next one is this. So once you put on the shoes, you become allergic to causing conflict. And then you take on the shield of faith, which you will then be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The flaming, the word in there in the Greek is the flaming missiles of the evil one. So faith, which means trust and confidence. It is Put on confidence in the Lord. Put on trust in the Lord so that you'll be able to extinguish when the enemy throws stuff at you. You begin to still trust God even while the enemy is throwing stuff at you. You become allergic to faithlessness. You become allergic to disloyalty to Christ. Becoming allergic to disloyalty in Christ. You become allergic to a lack of confidence in God. So when all hell is breaking loose and everybody else is losing their mind, running around like chickens with their heads cut off, you say, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. And then the last one is this. He says, no, not the last one, next to the last one. He says, take the helmet of salvation. I love this. The the helmet of salvation. The helmet guards the head, right? Your mind, your brain, which is like the command center of your, of your body. And so salvation was, is the word rescue. And so salvation is being rescued from the power of sin and death. So one of the effects of salvation, Jesus says this, whatever man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What do you think about yourself? What do you think about others around you? What do you think about God? And so there's ways in which <clears throat> all these different armors will rescue us, save us, deliver us from false ways of thinking about ourselves and the world around us. And then all the armor that I've given you up to this point has been defensive. Did you notice that? These are all things that protect you from the strategy of the enemy. <laughs> you don't really fight with a breastplate unless you take it off and start beating somebody with it. Right? Or, you know, you don't fight with a helmet unless you take it off and throw it at somebody. It's protection. But you were only given one offensive weapon against the enemy. Notice what it's not. It's not an IUD. It's not a bat. 
It's not a, a, a bomb. It's not even angry words that meant to hurt. What does he say? Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, can I say this? Is this okay if I say something here? He's not talking about this. <laughs> he didn't say take up the Bible. He didn't, this is not the sword of the spirit. <laughs> it's what God says. Now, God can speak through this, right? But you can use the Bible when God ain't speaking. And typically, we hurt people when we do that, right? So, Paul is saying the sword of the Spirit. So, it is the Word of God as ignited, as being wielded by the Holy Spirit. So, yes, it can be Scripture, but it's Scripture as being wielded by the Holy Spirit through us. When we encounter a certain situation, how many of y'all have been in a situation where you're just in a situation, whether it's good or bad or whatever, and the scripture comes up to you? Do you know what's happening there? The Holy Spirit's like, the Holy Spirit has pulled out the sword of the word of God, and he's given you a word to fight the battle with. So don't take that lightly when you're in a situation, when you're encountering opposition or a struggle or a conundrum of some kind, and all of a sudden a scripture or a verse comes up to you. That's the Holy Spirit saying, I need a lightsaber right now. We got a lightsaber? Okay. Side note, December 25th, Star Wars. Movie night. I need a lightsaber. And what a good Jedi do. They pull out the lightsaber to fight against the, the, the dark forces, the, the dark side of the force, the evil forces that will try to destroy life. God will give you the words to say. God will give you the scripture to say. But if you don't know your Bible, if you don't expose yourself to the Holy Scriptures, then you're giving the Spirit nothing to work with. No ammo. I see the Holy Spirit like, I want to give them this, but they haven't read this yet. <laughs> They're in a fight. That requires a specific and customized ammo. But they have not resourced themselves with the proper ammo. I ain't got the scriptures that I need to work with the situation. I can't recall the scriptures in their spirit because they don't know the scriptures. What soldier goes into battle? Without ammo. What soldier goes into battle without ammo? Can you imagine that scene? 
I love Jesus. I know Jesus. Yeah, I don't read my Bible. I don't know the scriptures, whatever. But I'm going to go fight. Can you imagine that? A soldier running head first into battle, and they have no ammo. What's going to happen to them? They're going to get beat down, crushed. So armor yourself. Armor yourself. So the word of God makes us more allergic to the inability to fight in the battle. Too many of us have become acclimated. We become, this, this has become a normal way of life for us. We're not ready for the battle. We're not prepared for the struggle. We're not prepared to fight the enemy when the enemy shows up because we have no ammo. We ain't got nothing to fight with. And God is saying, I've given you everything. I've given you enough. I've given you my grace. I've given you my own heavenly armor and power. But you got to work with me. And so, be prepared. Turn to your neighbor and say, be prepared. See, with the word, see, see, you begin to take aim. You begin to, you're able to take aim there. So you can't aim when you don't have the sword with you. Right? We got a lot of aimless Christians in the house, in the, in the church culture today. Aimless, hit and miss. You got to be able to go on the offensive. It's one thing to know that we're equipped by God to be on the defensive, to be able to withstand, to become allergic to the corrupting evil forces in our culture. But then there comes a point when you got to take the fight to the enemy. With the word of God, you got to have the word though. You can't just go in taking a fight to the enemy. Because what ends up happening is when you take the fight to the enemy with no ammo, you begin to fight like the enemy. You become like the enemy that you're fighting without the word of God. You fight with your enemy's words. You fight with the world's way of being and doing. Be prepared. And then he says this close with this verse 18 and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests that's like the artillery that's when you throw in the kitchen sink in you're throwing everything at the enemy Paul says throw prayers all kinds and with this in mind be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. I want you to pray for me. I want you, seriously, I'm, you know, we say this in church. I'll pray for you. No, really, like, pray for me. <laughs> pray for Dustin. Look at the person next to you. Look at the person across the aisle from you. Pray for them. Pray for your neighbors. And I dare you to pray for your enemies. And then Paul says, pray for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I declare it fearlessly as I should. Mm. 
You know what prayer does? Prayer makes you allergic to fear. Mm. Mm. My God. Prayer will make you allergic to fear. Yes, we'll have fear in battle. But I'm talking about allergic in the sense that it paralyzes you. See, every soldier that's ever been in battle, they have fear, but they move forward anyway. They're not paralyzed by the fear. See, see, it's okay to be like, man, shaking in my boots, but true courage from God pushes you forward in spite of the fear. I'm not paralyzed by it. Turn your neighbor and say, I'm allergic to fear. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God, we bless you. Lord, we thank you for this word, Father, <clears throat> that you are making us a people, oh God, that are able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. God, we thank you, God, that we are becoming allergic to evil. God, that we're becoming allergic to lies that we're becoming allergic to self-righteousness and a false religious persona. God, we thank you that we're becoming allergic, oh God, to causing conflict and strife, oh God, to becoming peacemakers. Make us allergic, God, to disloyalty and unfaithfulness and a lack of commitment to the right thing. But God, make us allergic to fear. The paralyzing of fear, the paralysis that comes from fear, God. God bless your people this evening, this afternoon. Anoint them afresh, God. Mm. There's some of you this week, you're going to open your Bible, some of you ain't done in a while. And God's going to give you ammo this week. Mm. there's some situations that some of you are facing right now you haven't been able to fight it because you had not had the ammo for it but God is saying open my word this week and I will give you the proper ammo for what you need right now to declare the word of God to speak life into that situation to speak boldness to speak a standing word a standing against word against the strategies of the enemy I double dog dare you to do it. God's going to give you ammo. God bless the children, oh God, as they learn about the armor of God this week. That they will teach us. <laughs> that we will listen to our children this week, God. That you will speak a fresh word even through our children this week, God. And how to take up the armor of God. Teach us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, through our little ones, oh God. God, we thank you for these things. God, set a fire to our soul. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord.